And I know some of you have been out. Some of you are just joining us today for the first time. We're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, so I thought it'd be a good day to review a little bit. We've uh, looked at the circularity of life. Uh, There is nothing new under the sun and things are quickly forgotten. And the uh, modern day cliche that comes from that is just that treadmill of life. And Solomon addresses it. And then we quickly moved into the search for meaning, that we looked for it in our jobs, in our careers. We looked for it in uh, how wise we were and finding out the other cliche. Lots of people are climbing the ladder of success only to see it's landing on the wrong building. And then we looked at the system of time, and I I tried to think of the the cliches, and I guess the the one that came to mind was father time. I mean, we, we call it father time. Time will tell. Time heals all wounds. And that's just not true. Uh, God, the Father, is over time, and he uses time, and everything works in its perfect time, and time doesn't heal all wounds. God uh, heals, and he often takes his time. And last week, we looked at working in a fallen world, that it's that classic uh, cliche, the rat race, that if you're working, and that is what you're seeking, Uh, you will find fruitless labor. And we're going to see a little bit more of that as today we will talk about working together. And so we want to get out of the rat race, but we're not into this dog-eat-dog world that we are working together in a fallen world. And so today we're going to look at community. I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for our praise team. Thank you for the songs they chose. Thank you that they exalt your son, Jesus. Pray now as we look at biblical community. Uh, Might our hearts be strengthened. Might this church be more united as we use our diversified gifts for the glory of God. We thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I have a question today. If you read Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol, long ago, Uh, I have a question. Do you think Scrooge bowled alone? Do you think Scrooge uh, went out and bowled alone? I mean, you remember the classic story, A Christmas Carol. It begins, if you uh, read it or like some who watched the movie instead of reading it, uh, Cratchit and Scrooge are in their office and Cratchit goes to add some coal to the fire to which Scrooge stops him and he says, what's this? And he walks him through his garments, and he says, yes, these are garments invented to protect against the cold. And once purchased can be used indefinitely, coal is momentary and costly. And later on in that conversation, Cratchit says, yes, but Christmas comes but once a year. To which Scrooge says, a poor excuse to pick a man's pocket every 25th of December. And so I'm sure, and I don't know bowling, I don't think it was quite around in my research, I think bowling came few years after this, but as we know it, bowling probably wasn't around, but I'm sure if it was, Scrooge would have bowled alone. And there was a book that came out just a few years ago called Bowling Alone by one of a Harvard professor, Robert Putnam, and his subtitle was The Collapse and Revival of American Community. And it's a book about how we think we have community, but if you observe culture today, A community is not like it used to be. We used to have wraparound porches where we could sit out and see our neighbors, but today we have these 
drawbridges called garage doors that they open up in the morning. The cars back out. The father goes to work. The drawbridge goes down, and you see it one time in the afternoon. It closes. And community, though we think we might have it, is not like it used to be. But he has a site, a companion site to his book called Better Together, and that's what we're talking about today because Putnam didn't discover this. Solomon tells us long, long ago. And so today we're going to see about the necessity of camaraderie, right? There's strength. Uh, when you, I was, I was at home a few weeks ago, minding my own business, preparing for a sermon, and I get a phone call. Can you come help me move? Can you help me move? I'm all alone. Can you come help me move? And so I, I said, sure. And I get in my truck, and I get my bungee cords, and I go, because you, there's strength in numbers. There's safety in numbers, right? Swim with a friend, hike with a friend. Nobody's ever gotten to the top of Everest alone. Dive with a friend. Today we're looking at biblical community. It's Ecclesiastes 4, 7 through 16, and Derek Kidner says, With grace and brevity, these verses depict the resilience, comfort, and strength bestowed by true alliance. And so today we're going to see the origin and the outworking of community. We're going to see the wisdom of community and then our responsibility as a community. First, we begin with the origin and outworking of community. Uh, We begin where all things begin. We begin with God. And God is Trinity. He's in perfect community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all divine in their equality, and they are diversified in their roles. God sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. God sends the Spirit. But you never see the Spirit sending the Son or sending God. You never see Jesus acting on his own authority. He even says in the Gospels, I only do what my Father has called me to do. And here's this perfect community. Since eternity passed, they didn't need to create the world. They were happy. First Timothy 1.11 says, uh, the glory of the blessed God. It's the same world, word used in the uh, Beatitudes of this happy God. They didn't need anything. In fact, Acts tells us, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by humans as though he needed anything. And there are some who would say, oh, God created the world because he's lonely. He was not lonely. He exists in perfect community since he himself gives to all mankind. And this is interesting. I thought about this when I was putting together my manuscript. To all mankind, life and breath, and it hit me. And everything. Everything. That's worth contemplating. That's, a, that's another sermon for another day. He gives us life and breath and everything. Think about it. That is the origin of, of community. And the outworking of it is in humanity, in the creation of the world. God created man, and then he wanted him to be in community. And he had him name all the animals, and he names all the animals. That would be interesting. That will be great when we get to heaven and we say, now, how did you do that? Because we read through it the other day as a family, and we were just talking, how did he do that? And he named them, and it says when he gets to the end, He could not find a helper suitable for him. And so in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good 
that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so in God's design, he created woman. Man needed the woman. The woman needed man. And he didn't, notice he didn't create another man. Or he didn't start with a woman and create another woman. The highest courts in America today are missing such wisdom. Right? My simple question in that is, is why, why did God, why are there, just to keep it neutral, why are there men and women? See, he designed us for community. We are social creatures who are to care for one another, and he gave that in the law. Leviticus 9 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. This is the book of Ruth. God values provision for the less fortunate found in community. Verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. And second time, I am the Lord your God. God values property. He values possession. 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. James picks up on that in his gospel. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall shall fear your God the third time. I am the Lord. God values protection provided by community. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. For the fourth time, I am the Lord. God values righteousness exemplified in community. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. He's going now to motives. This is what Jesus picks up on in the Sermon on the Mount. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance on, take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God values love realized and exercised in community four or five times. Why do we do this? Because God said so. Wanted you to see the entire context because we often quote the last part of verse 18 and we don't see the bigger picture. And this is what Jesus picks up on when he gives the greatest commandment. And the Proverbs go on to tell us this, right? Solomon wrote them, Proverbs are wisdom for parents, wisdom for children, co-workers and friends, the most famous of which iron sharpens iron. One man sharpens the another. We need one another. We don't need more money. We don't need more TVs or gadgets or watches. We don't need new cars necessarily, though, you know, a Jeep Rubicon would be pretty cool. We don't need more government. We don't need more education. We don't need more social programs. What we need is the Word of God in our hands, the Spirit of God in our hearts, and we need the people of God next to us. So Solomon's going to show us the wisdom of community. He begins in verse 7 of chapter 4 talking about isolation and the results of individualism. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. All Solomon is doing is he is observing culture and he's reflecting upon that, guided by the Spirit, and he's collecting for us these observations. My question to you before we even move on past this verse is do you and I look to culture 
not to culture, but do we observe culture? Do we see these things? And do we, are we ready to give God's answer? Is it ready on our tongues? Are we observers of culture? Or do we have our heads in the sand? Do we have a big view as was told to us in Sunday school? Or do we get so narrow that we miss what's around us? And are we defenders of culture? That's what Solomon's going to do here. He's going to defend God and his sovereignty. Or are we hiding under the covers, afraid to be involved in community? I looked and I saw again one person who has no other, verse 8. Literally, there is one and there is not a second, verse 8. Either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks. And here is a person who has no family. They have no friends. All they have is their work. And their eyes, their eyes are never satisfied. They get a little, and they want more. They get a little more, and they want more. Jesus addressed this head on in Matthew 6. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And so Solomon sees this. And he says, for whom, here's the question. Now, the NIV and other translations says, he asks. The NASB and the ESV says, he never asks. I tend to lean towards the NASB and the ESV that he, he never even asks this question. He's so focused on what he's doing, he doesn't lift his head to even ask a question. However, if the NIV and the NET get it right, he asks this question. Here's the question. Either way, he's asking this question. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Obviously, riches are not bringing him pleasure. Solomon says this is also vanity, meaningless, quickly passing. It is an unhappy business. Without friend or family, he's got this never-ending good-paying job that brings no satisfaction. That, my friends, is the rich reward of a lonely life. And you've heard story after story about those who have amassed wealth and they've died miserably. And so in 9 through 11, you're going to see this beauty of community. Two are better than one because they have good reward. There's, if you invest in community, there's good reward for their tool, for their work. And so he gives you in 10, 11, and 12 the rewards for your work. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and he has yet not another to lift him up. And so in community, there is assistance. I, I think of, of the book, Between a Rock and a Hard Place, later made into a movie called 127 Hours. And here's this kid, Ralston, who goes out on a hike in Utah by himself. And he literally gets stuck, his hand, in between a rock and a hard place. He has no one around him. And if you've read the book or seen the movie, you know what he had to do. I think of my mother who just had knee surgery. She's a widow. She lives miles from us. But there were people when she was down who came by to lift her up. I thank the Lord for my sister-in-law and for my wife who would leave their families to go serve my mother. And then when they left, she has had more food. You know, she goes to a Baptist church. So, I mean, she has more food 
Uh, I mean, we should buy her a new freezer. I mean, they just, and then, then they're like, well, you're probably tired of eating all that frozen food. Let's go out to dinner. And it's amazing. She is blown away by the community that's loved her because she has literally, in her, with her knee, fallen. I, I think of, of when it comes to assistance, I think of those who value community. They value the team, and they come together, and they live for something bigger than themselves. I remember uh, if you ever watched the movie Miracle about the hockey team in the 80s, the team was doing these Uh, they would skate from the red line to the blue line and back. And he said, when you get to the blue line, you tell me what team you're on. And they would skate. And this guy, I skate for whatever and whatever college. And he says, do it again. And they go back and they skate again. And the next guy, I skate for whatever and whatever college. Do it again. And they keep doing it again and doing it again until they're puking on the ice until one wise chap finally figures out he skates to the end and he says, I skate. United States of America. It was not about said college or said college. It was about something bigger than themselves. We live in community. There's assistance. There's help. There's production. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? If you understand the history of this, this was about when they were traveling. Sometimes they didn't have blankets. And in a very non-sexual way, this is the way people kept warm. Just this week, my wife read an article and forwarded on to me about kangaroo care, that there was a baby who was pronounced dead. And that mother put that baby on her chest and would just sit there skin to skin. Kangaroo care is what they call it. So much so that this baby starts coming back to life and the doctor didn't believe it. She said, no, really, he, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's breathing now, and you ought to go get the doctor. So she read the article. She had to lie and say, well, he's, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's, there's no use. He's done. So the doctor comes back and then sees, takes out his stethoscope and sees that this baby was brought back to life by the mother's care. And one of my favorite people in the world told me the story of his mama. He was very sickly as a child. He said he was kept alive because his mother kept him close. What Solomon says here is true to life. There is comfort in numbers. There is comfort in numbers. We just learned in Sunday school today, for every one missionary, there are two supporting people on the field just to keep them going. And we could, I could go on and talk about you send astronauts up in space and you just look back and see how many hundreds of people are getting those few where they need to go. And in 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. There is safety in numbers. And notice he goes from two to two to three because it's not about pairs and it's not even about the three. He's just saying there is when we're collectively more together than we are apart, there is production with community. There is provision in community. There is protection in community. And Solomon wrote other Proverbs that defend this idea of biblical community. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. A man of many companions, here's a balance to that, may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Young people hear this, and the companion of fools will suffer harm. You want to be wise? Walk with the wise. One guy told me one time, and I think it's the greatest advice outside the Scripture. Not the greatest, but it's good advice outside the Scripture. You will be, are a product of the books you read and the people you hang around. Whoever walks with the wise become wise. And if you have people to walk with who are wise, you will become wise. If you need more wisdom outside of that, there are, there are dead friends, as John Piper would call them, who you, whom you can read. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. Paul agrees with this when he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Young folks, choose your friends wisely. Speaking of youth, if you go back to Ecclesiastes 4, verse 13, better was a poor youth, a poor and wise youth, than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. This is my one prayer. Again, I'm speaking speaking hyperbolically. It's not my one prayer. I have a lot of prayers. This is one of them. That when I get old, because I'm only 40 wonderful, when I get old, I will not be too proud not to learn. That I get to a point that I'm saying, you know what? I've been doing this for years. I can't learn anything. God help me. I heard Howard Hendricks say that to us in seminary. He said, never get to a point where you're too old to learn. Old dogs can learn new tricks. This guy got to a point where he says, I'm not taking advice. And unfortunately, I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen with the older crowd. They get to a point and they don't want to learn. They figured life out. They become stubborn. They become stiff-necked. They're old and foolish is what Solomon calls them. Verse 14 is a difficult verse, room for interpretation. For he, who's the he here? Is this the poor and wise youth or is this the old foolish king? For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. There's two options here. There's one that the old king just had forgotten where he came from and the wise youth is talks about a wise youth who rose through the ranks and if you go with the second option you can think of the biblical illustration of joseph he was young he was put into prison and in the afternoon in the time it took him to shower and shave he's exalted to the position and after joseph died how does exodus begin there became a pharaoh over egypt who did not remember joseph so we don't want to be stubborn we don't want to be forgetful Solomon says, I saw the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And then in verse 16, you're going to see this idea of of this, this youth who was humble. Now, it's about popularity. There was no end to all the people of all whom he led. He was a popular king. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also a vanity and striving after win. One of the Biggest things young people have to fight with is humility and popularity. Humility to learn, and when you get popular, to just really recognize it's no big deal. It's vanity, and it's striving after wind. It's chasing wind. It's like, at least you can herd cats. So here's this idea. In community, it's fostered by humility, not by stubborn mindsets. And in in, in community... 
popularity fades. Popularity fades. We don't we shouldn't seek to be popular and famous. Whether we're musicians, pastors, we want to be the best uh best well-known accounting firm, whatever it is, we shouldn't seek popularity. He says it's it's fading, it's quickly passing, it's striving after wind. I mean, Solomon said this long before Andy Warhol said, you'll have your 15 minutes. That's all you have is 15 minutes of fame. Today's hero is tomorrow's zero. Don Meredith said of quarterbacks, they go from the penthouse, the top level, to the outhouse. Cover models, you better look good all your life because the one bad hair day, just walk, just go buy something in Walmart and you walk by the magazine rack and you don't even have to pick up the thing and read it. You just look at the cover and there's so-and-so who had a bad hair day and she's made fun of on Leno and all the late night shows. How about Jesus? One day they're putting down branches for him. The next day they're giving him blows. It's not about popularity. Humility will aid in community. Popularity fades in so what should we do? What should we do? Solomon gives us the truth, but he doesn't give us the whole truth. And so we follow and we trace this idea of community through the New Testament. And here's what you get. Jesus said this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine when he's giving, before he gives the great commission, which, by the way, is for all of us, he gives the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, like we talked about, as yourself. It's a part of the great commandment. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength without loving your neighbor. You cannot. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, 1 John four twenty says this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has seen. And so I can say with confidence, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God with your entire being. And love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't, that, that gross liberal view, you first got to love yourself before you, you already love yourself. You all, we all, that's all we do is think about ourselves. I got up this morning, I got to get my hair cut because I got to, you know, I got to look good. For, we just think about ourselves all the time. Nobody needs to taught, be taught how to love yourself. Every single person. Loves themselves. So Jesus says, no, love your neighbor as you already love yourself. With the intensity and with the sacrifice that you already love yourself, put that on to someone else. You cannot, you cannot love the Lord your God with all that you have without loving your neighbor as yourself. And so you see in in the great commandment, there's this idea of sacrificial biblical community. You see in Mark 6, 7, that Jesus lived by this principle that Solomon gives us. He says two two is better than one. And so what did Jesus do? He did not send the disciples out on their own. Two by two, says Mark 6, 7, they went out. Acts 2, we looked at this weeks ago, 44 through 45. They, They valued community. We gather once a week. They gather daily. 1 Corinthians 12, that the church cannot thrive. And I say this clearly, the church cannot thrive and be all it's called to be without true community. He uses, Paul uses the illustration of the body, the eyes and the ears. They can't argue with one another. The hands, all of them are included. The church can survive, but it will never thrive. 
without community. And perhaps two of the greatest verses in the Bible on the idea of loving others, especially those in the church. See, we have this weird view in the world. As long as we're serving the community somewhere, we're, we're, we're giving of our time, that is true community. I'm going to show you two verses that says, no, that is not true community. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary of doing good. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. My friends, the reason Paul writes this, and let's be honest with ourselves, is we can grow weary of doing good. We can grow tired of doing good. Not to go into detail, but I just, I told my wife this week, I am so selfish. I've grown weary. I just get to a point where I'm weary. And it's just, I want to, it just, I just want to be with me. And then I can use that cool excuse. Well, you know, I just take care of you, my love, and our three precious kids, and hide that selfishness in this shell of a thing called family. Oh, I believe family's important. Don't get me wrong. But we can hide behind it's just our family. Where do, where do you get this, Judd? Verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, you and I have enormous opportunity. Let us, Paul's talking to the church, do good to everyone. We ought to do good to everyone. Nobody, nobody's denying that. We should go out and we should do good all over the place. But don't miss this last phrase, and especially to those who are the household of faith. That's not my words. That's Paul's words, and Paul wrote those. They're contained in this thing called the Bible. We should do good to all people, but our priority is this church. Period. End of story. That's what it says. And our, should we go out and help other churches? Amen. But if we're not here, and you know who? You know the brilliant theologian that said this to me one day? Her name's Ashley. She made a great point. She said this. If we're not, if, if we're not taking care of Eagle Bible Church, nobody else will. Right? I don't get other pastors calling me, hey, man, how, how can I serve you this week? They're taking care of their flight, and that's good. That We need more churches. We don't need less churches. But wherever you attend church, you should be all in. And perhaps there's no better way to talk about one another than with the one another passages. And you should have that uh, on your seat there. I gave my copy out here. We're not going to go through all of this, but 21 ways, Twenty. I give you 21 ways. I looked at every single verse in the New Testament that had one another, every single one of them, and categorized them for you under 21 headings. Might I encourage you, we're not going to go through, well, maybe we should. Should we just start right here and just, I mean, starting in John 13, 34, I've already called, canceled all your other plans, trust me. We're just going to spend the rest of the day, verse by verse. Wouldn't that be a great time together? It would. If we lived in another culture where they weren't bound by time, might we do that? Just all day. But here's 21. Number one, we abundantly, fervently love one another. Of all the passages of one another, 
The most of them declare, love one another, love one another, love one another. Now notice the second listed, the second most numerous list here is, do not destroy one another. Do not bite and devour one another. Do not be impatient with one another. Is right. So our call to love one another is right next to this idea of don't destroy each other. Thirdly, is to show hospitality to each other. Fourthly, see each other as more important than yourself. In my opinion, you've heard me say this before, if we really, if we memorized Philippians 2, 3, we put it in our brains, and we prayed to the Lord that would move to our hearts, and then we prayed to the Lord, we said, Lord, I want to consider others more significant than myself. If we, again, God's given a 66 book, 1189 chapters, so I'm not going to try to narrow it down to one verse. However, if we would take that one verse, and if we would use it as a filter every single day of our life, there would be radical change in our personal lives, in the life of this church, in our community, and across the world. Do you and I see others more important than ourselves? I'll just leave that one there. And then we should encourage each other. All the more as we see the day approaching, we should be overflowing with encouragement. We should be, according to the scriptures, not according to me, an active part of the body of believers. Jim Kinzer once said it would be interesting to see someone who said, I am a part of the body of believers, but they're a disconnected hand over there. If we saw a hand over here not connected to the body, we would say, that is strange and just doesn't happen. And you can go on through this. Pursue peace between each other. Admonish one another. You should be close enough to connect with people, but caring enough to confront. We should be devoted to each other. I love what what Clyde read. We should be devoted to one another. As Romans 12 puts it, we should, this is a mindset change for most of us, including me. Outdo one another. Outdo one another. I'm going to serve you today. No, I'm going to serve you. And we're just going to go back and forth. Daily, I'm going to clean your house. No, Romy, I'm going to, we're going to go clean the Healing's house. And we're, we're just going to, we're going to outdo each other. But what do we try to outdo each other in? My phone's bigger than your phone. Well, I've got an iPad. Well, I have a Samsung. We try to outdo each other in things that do not matter. Be devoted to one another. Outdo one another. I love in Romans 12, it said, Owe nothing but to love one another. That's good debt. All other debt, not good debt. The only debt you want to have in your life, because it says it in the scriptures, and I'll just read it to you to make sure I'm not misquoting it. The only debt that you should have or be working towards, right? I understand if you have home, don't don't email me saying, you know what I'm saying. Says this. Love one another, outdo one another, do not be slothful. Owe nothing to each other except love. The only thing debt you should choose is I owe every day. I owe more love to my wife. I owe more love to my kids. I owe more love to the church. I owe more love to my neighbors. And thus, when I'm devoted, I should speak the truth and sing to one another. And we should forgive each other because we're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to sin against each other. Stepping on the toes is just a, a safe way. To, we're going to sin against one another. We're, that's what We're humans. We're humans. 
And thus, right after that, it's be patient with one another. Serve each other. Show grace to one another. Accept each other in unity with diversity. Married believers, be prayerful lovers. Be submissive to each other in God-assigned roles. Read the context there. Husbands and wives, parents and kids, employers and employees. Comfort one another. Confess to one another. Fellowship with each other. Give gifts to each other. 21 things that we could practice in our lives. And so what would be my, my encouragement to you to kind of summarize this based on what Solomon told us in uh, Ecclesiastes 4? Number one, play on words here, separate yourself from isolation. For some of you, this is no, not a big deal. You're, you're involved. For some of us, this is going to be tough. Because to separate, when you're isolated, things are easy. Even if you're a married couple or family, when you're isolated, it's easy. But to invest in true community, honestly, it's a big step. For some, it's just, get, it's, it's like Solomon says, don't be so stubborn. Humble yourself and join something bigger than yourself. Don't be afraid. We're all sinners in the hands of a loving God. We're all being conformed to his image. All of us. Nobody's reached it. I sure haven't. Those of you who know me are like, yeah, that's right. It's a humble, it's a bold step. Because I'll, I'll just be honest. There are some of you who, who think you're living in true community, but you're isolated. And not everybody's going to do everything the way you like it. My encouragement to you is join anyway. Come talk to myself or Brian or Jim or those who are already members about being a part of something bigger than yourself. Monday morning quarterbacks aren't needed in the NFL and they're not needed in the church. We need you to join with us and see that it's a messed up community. But this, this community right here, and I I would say it for all true Bible-preaching evangelical churches in the valley and across the country and across the world, that's where it's at. That's where God's going to use people and their gifts to change the world. God used... One man who went on a short-term mission trip met another couple, and for 15 years that couple's been out doing their work. And then they went and translated, really went and developed the language in, in written form, then translated the New Testament so much so that now the church wants to go and do more church work. They're doing it together. It's not, well, if I just go to work and if I just raise, if I just love my wife and I just raise my kids, then, then that, that's all I really need to do. That is not all you need to do. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, that's just the starting place. You can't be a leader unless you do that. But it's not just that. We need you. We need a Bible in our hands, a spirit in our hearts, the people of God around us. I end where, where I began. I, you know, Scrooge came around. He finally came to his senses. Remember after that night when he was visited by the ghost of Christmas? He, he went out and he, he, couldn't, he couldn't wait. He'd go buy a turkey and go do this. And he was just, he had been changed. You, you saw his wretched ways end. You, you could say he repented of his isolation and literally invested in his community. But we don't just... We don't have ghosts of Christmas. We have the God of Christmas who calls us to true community, and that true community is the local church. And he's called all of us together 
to build something bigger than ourselves, something that will outlast ourselves. And he's promised nothing, not even the gates of hell, will prevail against it. 